Welcome to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Magic Valley Bible Church has been serving the Magic Valley for 20 years and is located at the corner of Gooding and Main Street in downtown Twin Falls, Idaho. Our service starts at 9 a.m. and is streamed live on our YouTube channel. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible. Magic Valley Bible Church, built on God's Word. Take your Bibles this morning and open them to Mark chapter 9. Your pastor, somebody asked me, I mean, you you are going quick. Today we are going to be doing 12 verses. Last week we did 14 verses, so we are are moving quick. And part of that is just understanding the pericope or the section of Scripture and the narrative um, and what the Lord is teaching us. And so it all flows together, and so I try to as difficult as it is to um, be able to keep that together and and deliver it to you in the way that it is given to us in the scriptures. The title of today's sermon is A Lesson on True Greatness. As you know, Jesus and his disciples are heading to Jerusalem. We're about roughly six weeks before he hells into Jerusalem and not only to be turned upon by the crowd, he has completed his public ministry in the, in the Galilee area, much of where Mark has focused his attention in writing this gospel on. And right now we find ourselves with our Lord teaching his disciples truth. And really what he's doing is preparing them in light of his exit. In light of his pending crucifixion and resurrection, he wants them to be prepared knowing that the challenges at hand are going to be immense. And what he's teaching here for us this morning in our passage is of epic importance. This is something that all of us need to learn Of course, this will be something that this truth not only was for them, but for us. So let me begin by reading our passage, and I think you'll understand what I'm saying here. Starting in verse 30, the narrative says this, the Word of God. From there, they went out and began to go through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know about it. For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. But they did not understand this statement, and they were afraid to ask him. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had discussed which, with one another which of them was the greatest. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your, because of your name as followers of Christ, truly I, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. 
Let us pray. Father, we thank you this morning for us to be able to come to a, a passage that, that affects all of us. Of course, truth does that. Your word continues to sift our souls and desiring to, to make our lives accordingly. At times we have, and oftentimes, we have to have heart checks. And these are those type of passages that looks at our own hearts to see if there's pride in it, to be able to root those things out, to understand truly not allowing the world to, to creep into our understanding of what is great, but truly understand what biblical greatness is. And so I pray with your truth and with your spirit that you would teach us to grasp and to hold an understanding of what true biblical greatness means, what it looks like, and how to follow it. Teach us, agree with your servant. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As you well know, we live in a in generation that is obsessed with greatness. For example, we just entered a new year. You think about the endless lists of top ten lists of each sport, of each plays, ultimately deciding the number one. And then, in society, we have this thing called the Guinness Book of World Records. And this is pretty odd. It keeps track of all the first and the best, especially of the weird tasks, right? Sports are obsessed with categories of greatness. The best offensive, defensive player, the, the, the most valuable player, the best team over the, the span of that sport, Stats are taken every day and compiled every day and archived so that one can determine who is the best. Now, as a note, your pastor is a baseball player. Baseball takes it to a level that's very extreme. It takes it to the highest level. And the only reason I bring this up, because Shree and I have been having this long, drawn-out, funny debate on, on why baseball has so many different categories and stats. She sees it as useless information. Now, such a stance violates the ethic code of what it means to be a baseball player. And so every time we get into these debates, we've got to, it gets, it gets pretty, pretty heated in a fun way. I try to tell her the reason why such information is valuable for a manager, the reason why stats are taken. Case in point, how well does a hitter do against a left-handed pitcher is important. How well a, a batter does against a, a right-handed batter does against a right-handed pitcher. I mean, on and on, you can see the stats of baseball. She, of course, sees the foolishness of all those different stats. And then I'm trying to tell her this is where strategy comes into the game. There are even discussions on who is the greatest American president, the greatest barbecue, the greatest Mexican food, and so on and so on. And then if that wasn't enough, there's a new word in today's culture that you know that your pastor's pretty hip and I'm on top of all that. <laughs> Far from it, right? But I remember asking my kids this there's this idea in our culture that there's one that tops all the list, and that is the, the goat. In my day, the goat was something that you fed and really didn't do much with, but in this day and age, the goat is an acronym that stands for the greatest of all time. He or she is the goat. But have you ever thought of a word and when you think about greatness, when you think about the GOAT, when you think about all these lists, all these things are comparative. They compare one versus the other, one against the, the teams of the decades, and, and you have all these comparisons. To be the greatest means that you are better than someone or something. In other words, greatness is a popular and commonly defined by comparing something or someone to something or someone else. 
that is inferior to the greater one. And then when you think about the opposite of greatness, we use such words as average and ordinary and maybe even worthless. In other words, common understanding or greatness look at others in a way that is competitive and comparative, in a way that is, get this, self-promoting. When you think about those discussions, you have to give your reasons why they are the GOAT. And you are giving this list and promoting why your answer should be believed amongst all. In short, our understanding of greatness exalts self, diminishes others, and ultimately ignores God, who, by the way, alone is great. Amen? Now, as we begin seeing, as Jesus starts showing the real measure of greatness, he comes to this passage this morning. We, we, we see this, that he wants to teach his disciples another lesson, and in case for us, he's teaching us as well. He wants us to get what biblical greatness is so that in turn that we could rightly understand how God sees greatness. And if there's one to, to have an understanding of, but when it comes to greatness, it is God's. We want to understand exactly what God determines to be great. And so this is such a vital truth for our hearts to understand this morning, to grasp. For the world, worldly greatness is wrapped up in pride. But at the heart of biblical greatness, as we will see, it's wrapped up in God. And if there's ever a lesson that needs to be learned and continues to needs to be learned is the understanding of what it means to be great in the eyes of God. Really, who cares what the world says, right? Who really cares what the world says is great? But for us as Christians who follow the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior? We're more concerned about what he thinks and what he determines what is great. And so in our passage this morning is a lesson on greatness, biblical greatness. Jesus does this by giving us four priorities of this biblical greatness. They're there in your outline for you to write down some notes, but also to remind yourselves of these priorities so that we can rightly live for him. This lesson on biblical greatness comes from with a, a full heart and mind understanding that will in turn flesh out in our lives. In other words, it will check our hearts. We understand that when God's truth hits our hearts, that we need to respond. We respond to that truth by submission to the obedience of the word and in turn live it out. So what is this? What is this biblical greatness in which the Lord wants us to understand and which we must desire? Well, the first is, is that we must understand that there is the, the cross before the crown. You're going to say, well, why, where does this fit in all this? Well, it is foundational, especially with our Lord, understanding of what he is doing. He knows, and he's already taught us this in Mark chapter 8. He's already taught us about the fact that there's going to be suffering before there's going to be glory. And so we must understand in our, when it comes to greatness, especially with Christ being the greatest, suffering will come before glory. The cross is before the crown. This, of course, is Jesus' second prediction of his death that Mark records for us. By the way, he will record three times for us this, this significant passion week of what's going to happen and what's going to happen to him. And so let's look at this. Why once we understand the cross is before the crown? Look at verse 30. It reads, from there, now, of course, a little context helps. What is going on here? Remember Jesus and his three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they, they are coming down the mountain. Of course, after that glorious event of the transfiguration where they see the, the future glory of Christ. Of course, they heard from God as he speaks, and Elijah and, and Moses shows up. A lot of things happening. Remember, as we saw last week, they, they're, they're descending from Mount Hermon, and they come upon the people, the rest of the nine disciples. There's a crowd and scribes gathered around. 
And we saw last week the reason for such a commotion and what was going on was that the disciples couldn't cast out a demon out of a demon-possessed boy. And so Jesus again teaches them a lesson on faith. Remember that? Jesus casts out the demon and then teaches the disciples who, remember, had been given the authority in Mark chapter 6 to cast out demons, but couldn't here in Mark chapter 9. And the reason was faith. A lesson on faith, faith in the one, God himself, who can do all things according to his will and his glory, was the lesson that Jesus taught us. From there, they leave. And this is where we get into our passage in verse 30. And it continues to say, And they went out and began to go through Galilee. And they went out and began to go through Galilee and did not want anyone to know about it. Jesus and his disciples, they're, they're heading towards south, towards Jerusalem. They, they, they are passing by some territory in which they have already done public ministry. Mark gives notice that Jesus is continuing to display his goodness and his kindness. He's also reminding us that Jesus is telling his, his followers to not to tell people about what he's doing. And we know Mark has been very clear on this. Jesus has been very clear on this. And the reason why he doesn't want anybody to know. Why? Because it's not finished yet. Because it wasn't his time. The messianic plan, or the way of salvation per se, as we know it, had not been complete in his death and resurrection. So Mark again writes for us that Jesus did not want anyone to know about it. Remember, he doesn't want them to be confused that Jesus came, he didn't come just as a, a miracle healer. He came as a redeemer, a savior. By the way, this is the last time recorded for us in Mark's gospel and as well as the other Gospels, that this would be the last time that Jesus is in the Galilee area, only until after his resurrection will he see his disciples again there. So Jesus is, is bent towards Jerusalem, and as we look at verse 31, he was teaching his disciples about his messianic purpose again. He wants them to get it. Remember last time how they responded. Peter said, hey, Jesus, you're out of line. You're getting your theology wrong. He tried to correct his theology about the messianic purpose of why he came. Of course, that didn't go well for Peter. And so here he is again teaching them. Look at verse 31 again. It says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them, The Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed... He will rise three days later. Like I said earlier, Mark gives us three accounts of this definitive messianic plan that the, the Messiah must first come as a suffering servant. We also noted throughout our studies that the Jews didn't get this. They had a glorified earthly reign of their Messiah that made all the other nations bow down to them. And they were longing for this glory of an established earthly reign of the Messiah that they forgot to even understand Isaiah 53 or what Jesus is telling them time and time again, I'm going to Jerusalem to die. We already seen the first one in Mark 8.31. Consistency in what he's teaching them back then. Remember what it said there? And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. The second time is here in our passage in Mark chapter 10, or excuse me, Mark chapter 9. And then the third one is in Mark chapter 10, right on the heels of this chapter. Again, we see a greater portion of that. I read all these just so that you can have an understanding that Jesus is very clear in his direction, very clear in his exhortation and his motives of why he's heading to Jerusalem. Mark 10, 32 to 34 it reads there, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man 
will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him and three days later rise again. What's remarkable about these last two statements of his messianic purpose, about his death and his resurrection, is how the disciples respond to such truth. Here in our passage in Mark chapter 9, it says that the disciples are afraid and they don't understand, but then it also launched them into a discussion of who is the greatest. They turn inward. The same result is in Mark chapter 10. They hear the, the most profound reality of what God is doing in sending the Messiah and what Jesus came to do, and get this, that that truth would be the gospel that the disciples would preach. And the disciples responded, not who's the greatest, but who is going to be the greatest in authority? Who's going to sit at the left hand and the right hand of Jesus? Again, a response on who is going to be the greatest. And so Jesus teaches on humility. He, he wants them to get that. It's not about your position in the kingdom. You're used for God for his reasons. You're called by his divine purposes and wants to remind them that there's only one who is great. So this is clearly a, a lesson that Jesus teaches his disciples, especially in light of his leaving and, and in turn how we should pursue Christ until he comes again. Also, by way of observation, when you look at these three times that Mark gives us in this messianic purpose and teaching about his death and resurrection, there's no mention about the cross. All that was just telling them is that we're going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die. I'm going to be turned over to the scribes, I'm going to be turned over to the men, these Gentiles as well, they're going to kill me. But there's no mention of the instrument of death that Jesus is going to die. No mention of the cross. So the first part of this, this lesson on biblical grace and, uh, greatness is the whole idea of understanding that there will be suffering before there is glory. Understanding that him being the greatest, this is part and parcel of what's going to happen in our own life. We know suffering will come our way if, for those who love Christ, who, who follow Christ. And so there's going to be this cross before the crown. And again, at verse 31, look at it. It says, For he was teaching his disciples and telling them that the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, he will rise three days later. I mean, he's literally outlining the Passion Week for us, right? It, it says that Jesus was teaching, which is pretty interesting in the Greek. When you look at the grammar, it, this is literally... It, an imperfect active indicative, which you're, by the way, saying, well, so what? What this is saying is that he is not just teaching one time. He's continually teaching them on and on and on about this truth. And so this wasn't just a one-time deal where, like, you're in the classroom and your teacher says it one time and then it's on the test. This is something that Jesus has been telling them and teaching them and, 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 and emphasizing that this is what's going to happen and what's going to happen is that the Son of Man, again, a messianic title pointing to his humanity, as we know, Jesus would die and in our place, right? A perfect substitute. Notice that it's the Son of Man, God in the flesh, who's going to be delivered into the hands of men. They would kill him. Jesus putting himself there in the, in the third person, which is pretty remarkable. He kind of just removes himself, but wants them to understand the reason why he is coming and why he came, that he will be killed. And notice that it says killed there twice, right? He was delivered in the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he has been killed, emphasizing the reality that Jesus does die. Why is that important? All your Gnostics think that Jesus didn't die. The significance of his death is so important for us because we understand the Old Testament and what it was laid out to be, that it was going to take a blood sacrifice to cover sins. 
Jesus will spill his blood. And then, three days later, we'll rise again. Rise here is from the Greek word anastisme, which is kind of a hard word to say, but it's in the middle voice. And why I point this out is because this is so significant. Jesus says he will rise again. He himself will do the rising, which tells us about his power which tells us about his goodness and his his greatness, that he is the one to be able to conquer sin and death. He will rise, all because of the power of Jesus. No help at all. As the disciples heard this, Mark records the response and their action in verse 32. It tells us there that, but they did not understand this statement. Part of it is because they had a theology that was wrong, And anything that went against theology, have you ever noticed that? You have a hard time moving your theology according to the biblical truth because we kind of like it where it is. But yet truth is always shaping our theology. And here they hear from the Messiah himself. They did not understand the statement. And it says, and they were afraid to ask him. Part of that probably is because of what Peter experienced. They saw what Peter got chastised per se, rightly so, put in his place. But no questions were asked, just a misunderstanding. And they were afraid to ask him. Listen, there's nothing like the saving gospel of Jesus Christ, amen? It is simple enough to save you and yet has a depth that we continue to marvel at. Jesus, who was God in the flesh, died for you and rose on the third day. All for you to have you reconciled, to be made right with God, to save you, to redeem you. And this is the beauty of the gospel in which Jesus is proclaiming, and this is the gospel in which they will preach, and this is the gospel in which the church heralds the gospel. The great exchange where Jesus takes your sins and dies for them. Yet in order to receive this this marvelous grace, this exchange for yourself, you must repent and believe in him. In order to go to pending glory, where Jesus is king, and where he will be great, or the greatest, there has to be a cross before the crown. And so this truth is very foundational in our understanding of what it means to be biblically great. Listen, Jesus isn't asking you to die on a cross. He is asking you to suffer for his truth. For some, it might come to death. But understand something, that he's the one who atoned for our sins. But he is asking us to submit to his divine act and what he did on the cross and what he did through his resurrection and ascension. To to uphold that, to believe that, to understand that, and to follow that. If you want to be great in God's eyes, you must first repent and believe in Jesus. That's what he's saying. Here is the gospel before you. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you first need to come to him. And you need to, to believe and receive his grace. And you need to walk in that grace. And you need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind and being continually changed by the truth. Enter into biblical greatness is to first come to Jesus. Now, there's a second priority that we must understand and must have when we think about biblical greatness, and that is to understand that we need humility. Humility before ambition. Look at verse 33. It says, They came to Capernaum, they, Jesus, the disciples, and even some of the crowd that were following. And when he was in the house, this most likely is, again, Peter's house or his mother-in-law's house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? Ouch, right? Did Jesus hear us? Why is he asking such a statement? Verse 34, but they kept silent. Why did they keep silent? For on the way they had discussed 
with one another, which of them was the greatest? Here Jesus notices that after his continual teaching on the messianic purpose, his death and his resurrection, that the disciples were talking. Uh, you ever been a part of a big group and, and, and you're walking towards a particular area? You've got conversations going on, right? It's not that everybody can hear what's going on, and so we can kind of infer maybe that maybe Jesus didn't know, but we also know this, that Jesus was what? Omniscient. There's times where we see his omniscience in the Gospels and in his interaction with people. We also know that according to John's Gospel, in John chapter 2, verse 24, can you throw that up there? It says, but Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. In other words, he knew what they were thinking, and, and we know these things. He notices that they were discussing things and that they were afraid to ask him questions, but they took their understanding. Do you get this? They took their understanding of what Jesus said, and they were trying to align themselves, to put themselves in the best position to be the greatest out of the 12. And even for Jesus to ask them for what they were talking about points to the reality that Jesus probably wasn't a part of their discussion, but yet we know through his omniscience that he knows all things. What were the disciples talking about? Who is the greatest? Who is the goat? And in Mark chapter 10, it was going to be who is the greatest that has the ability to sit at either the right or the left hand of Christ. I guess what's remarkable about this, when, when we see the profound direction of the messianic purpose that Jesus teaches, that the response of the disciples was about themselves. And how often do we live that way? Jesus, we want you to be great, yep. But we also kind of want a part of that too. And so we're selfishly thinking about our own and jockeying and navigating in such a way that we can be great. And we look inward. And Jesus was teaching them in the heart, uh, in the heart of a true biblical greatness is that to be great in God's eyes, you must be humble. And he's going to teach them that through an illustration here shortly. Just as Jesus was humble and setting aside his divine position, we know that according to Philippians chapter 2, so too those who follow Christ must set aside their own agendas and embrace Christ's agenda. To be great in God's kingdom, we must walk and live in humility and set aside our, our personal ambitions. The world tells you you've got to be great and you've got to do it. The scripture tells you in order to be great, you humble yourself and you serve others. We'll see that here in just a minute. And so in order to drive this lesson about humility and being a servant at all, he, it comes to our third priority. First, we must understand that the, the crown of the cross is before the crown. Two, we must understand that you must live in humility and not seek selfish ambition about workplace you're going to be in the kingdom. And now third, we must understand that we pursue service over prominence. Look at verse 35. It says, sitting down, he called the 12. By the way, sitting down is a place of authority. Every time that the Jewish synagogue, when they would go and worship in Jewish days, Judaism, the rabbi would sit down, everybody else would stand. This is kind of odd. This is not what normally happened back then, right? It'd be kind of odd if I was sitting and all of you guys kind of stood and just sat around. We don't do that thing for chairs, right? But in this day, this is pointing to his authority in their lives. And so he sits down and he calls the 12 and said to them, if any wants, anybody wants to be first, protocost, in other words, be first in line, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. I mean, this is the principal point of the passage. If you want to be great, you want to be first, if you want to be the goat, you must be last, and you must serve all. This is the mindset of the believer in Christ. 
By the way, this is a complete reversal. <laughs> this is something totally opposite of what the disciples were thinking. Remember, the, the disciples hadn't told Jesus what they were talking about, but Jesus knew exactly what they were talking about. Could you imagine that? You think that you're in secret. You're talking about these things about who's going to be the greatest. You're giving your case why you should be the greatest. And all of a sudden, the teacher says, sit down. We need to have a talk. And here Jesus teaches them. They must have been shocked. Of course, his omniscience is on display. He knows what's in the heart of men. And so he's teaching his disciples about biblical greatness. And if you want to be great in God's kingdom, you must be last. In other words, that you must put others before yourself. That you must put others and think of others other than yourself. And you must be a servant of all. Listen, we all love to serve those who love us, do we not? It's easy to serve those ones that you love, but it's difficult to serve the ones who don't give you any appreciations maybe sometimes. Now, this is a heart check because often we love to serve those who give us the praise or notices our service to them. But notice the scripture says, you serve all. Even those who don't even say a word or don't even show even a hint of gratitude. As Jesus was teaching this principle, he, he brings a, a visible illustration for them to grasp. Look at verse 36. Taking a child, of course, in the house setting, child, children are there. He set him before them, and taking him, the child, he took him in his arms. And he said to them, notice that he's not necessarily teaching the child, he's teaching still the disciples. He said to the disciples, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. In other words, this is a divine principle. And this is profound. Why? You and I, it's pretty easy for us, even this morning, was able to embrace some children. It's easy for us to love on kids, is it not? We live in a culture in a day and age that, that we embrace kids. We love kids. But back in those days, children were often overlooked. They were used as workers around the home. Uh, they, they didn't have any you know, child labor laws. I mean, these kids were engaged in whatever the family was doing, and they were somewhat like treated like slaves. By the way, when it comes to greatness, Jesus is not necessarily renouncing. He does want his children to be great in the kingdom. What he's doing here is just re redefining it, is he not? And so Jesus takes this little boy, takes him to his arms, which is a sign of affection, endearment. Probably, no doubt, put him on his, on his, on his lap. And he begins to teach the disciples. Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Receives me. And he takes the one that's often overlooked and he brings them in and embraces them and says, when you serve these ones, you are receiving, believing in Christ. By the way, when it comes to children, we have to teach them gratitude. Do you understand that? Often when they're little and they're asking for something and we give it to them, we say, we start teaching them please and thank you. We want them to understand that this is an act of gratitude. But often if you were not to teach children gratitude, they wouldn't give it. I mean, that's something that Shri and I, we, I'm, I'm pretty sure you as well, we're always teaching our kids when somebody shows an act of kindness, you are recognizing that. In those days, 
They didn't necessarily teach all that. I think this is Jesus' point. They don't go around telling others that you gave them, you know, something to their benefit. And Jesus says, when you serve even those who are ungrateful, at least verbally, right? You are receiving me. In other words, he gets at the motives of our hearts. Why do we serve when we serve? Is it for the accolades? Do you show up on a Sunday? Do you, do you show up on a Wednesday to serve kids so that you can get some type of reward? Do we serve without looking for the accolades or the trophy or some sort of prominence? And the reason you serve is because you love your Lord. On the flip side, I must say in my observation, we have many people who serve your children, our children, with great love. I see it on Wednesday. I see it on Sunday mornings. And if Jesus is saying that these will be the greatest among the kingdom, listen, when we get to heaven, when those who are in Christ Jesus get to heaven, I don't think the closest ones to Jesus are going to be your prominent pastors or, or any pastor. I think it's going to be the ones who faithfully have served, who have labored, where Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, where they have looked at the desire, knowing that these little ones, they need to hear about Christ, and so they serve them with all their gusto. Individuals who serve silently but yet faithfully, I think they're going to have the providence when we all get to heaven. They love your, your children faithfully. They teach them Sunday and Wednesday nights. Get this, they often wipe their nose and change their diapers. Tasks that not necessarily required of them, but they do that out of love and maybe because of smell. But they do this with tired souls, do they not? but with joy in their heart. God's kingdom, he sees those are ones who are prominent. This leads us to our, our fourth priority as we understand biblical greatness, and that is to understand ministry is the head of privilege. Look at verse 38. It says, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. I mean, this... <sighs> the disciples... Jesus is teaching them. You would think that, listen, this is the time to be quiet. This would be a time to not say anything. Jesus is rebuking us. He knows what's in our hearts. But then you have the apostle John. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him because he was not following who? Not Jesus, but us plural, personal pronoun. John got his toe stepped on. What makes this so remarkable is that we remember earlier that they couldn't cast out a demon, possessed boy, and Jesus had to do that. And here they see somebody kind of taking the limelight a little bit here, right? And, and, and John is tattling. Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. Oh, and we tried to stop him, but he wouldn't listen to us, Right? because they're not following us. They were trying to get them in line to follow what this is what the apostles or disciples do. And this person wasn't having anything to do with it. They were critical of another follower of Jesus. They were critical of the work that this individual was doing in the name of Jesus. Again, this principle checks our heart and, and how we look at life and how we look at ministry. The point is this. Do we rejoice when the kingdom of God advances? Uh, yes. Same gospel, right? 
do we get jealous of those who are progressing the gospel because we are not? Look at verse 39. Jesus said, Do not hinder him, for there is no one who will perform a miracle in my name and be able soon afterwards speak evil of me. In other words, there's a linkage to the gospel here, right? They're on the same team. Jesus saying, if he is doing ministry in my name, leave him alone. I mean, how often are we so narrow in our praise that it is relegated to what I see with my own eyes? And don't get excited about when the kingdom rejoices and advances with somebody else when somebody else is doing it. When other Gospel sound churches are doing the work of kingdom. We should stand up and exalt and rejoice. I'm not saying that we don't need to have discernment here. They must have the right gospel, right? I think for some, they, they would err on the side where doctrine and understanding of the gospel can go, kind of go to the side, sideways and, and, and away. But when somebody is doing solid gospel work, Let us rejoice. Verse 40. And the reason why we rejoice in what God is doing in other people's lives for his kingdom and for his glory, verse 40 says, for he who is not against us is for us. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because of your name as followers of Christ. Truly, I say to you, he will not lose his reward. This gets to the whole issue of hospitality. Uh, we're, we're rejoicing the fact of, of, of people doing great things in the kingdom according to the gospel and the biblical gospel, proclaiming Christ. And then it says, you know, listen, you're going to be rewarded. Why? Because God looks upon that as you show hospitality, as you encourage other followers in Christ. This is the whole idea of having a team perspective, that the kingdom of Christ is bigger than these four walls, right? And so I guess the hard check comes this way. Are we seeking the praise of God or are we seeking the praise of ourselves? Do we have the understanding that we are the only ones that can do ministry? We'd be foolish to think so. What's our takeaway from all this? I think it's hard hitting all the way through it. But simply does our understanding, if I can leave you with one thing, our understanding of greatness. What does it mean to be Great in God's eyes. Well, he laid it out here for us. Are we understanding that suffering will take place before there is even an ounce of glory? Are you seeking humility before your selfish ambitions? Are you serving others, serving all, instead of seeking self-prominence? And finally, do you understand that when ministry happens, we rejoice, no matter if it's in our four walls or not. Do we understand that Jesus is the true and the greatest, that he is the greatest of all time? A text like this checks your motives. It evaluates why you are doing what you're doing. By the way, if you find your heart to be selfish, pray for repentance. If you find your act of service to be self-serving, seek repentance. And get right and get on board and get an understanding that, that, listen, we come on Wednesday nights, we come on Sunday mornings to serve in such a way that, that we desire to give the king, even though we are tired and worn, we're going to be faithful and we're going to serve the king. By the way, if you're hitting those marks, the charge is just to keep on keeping on. 
Keep on being that example that loves kids and, and loves others and, and serves all without the desire of having any accolades. Keep your eyes focused on Christ, amen? Simple truth, but yet hard-hitting to our souls. It judges our thoughts and our motives, and this is exactly what the Word of God does. Let us pray. Father, we again thank you for the morning. Thank you for this lesson of what it means to truly be great in the kingdom of God. Too often we are self-motivated. We're selfish, even in ministry. Lord, forgive us of those things. Strip away our, our selfishness. And in its place, may you put humility and a desire to look at others more than self. To be able to serve because we love you and you show the example of that and you will continue to show that example as we walk through this great gospel. You will come to the point where you will take up a towel and you will wash the disciples' feet. Again, showing an act of service. We understand fully that those disciples should be the ones who is washing your feet. And yet you have given us an example of what it means to be a servant. Oh, may you check our souls. May you check what we're doing in life. And may you find us serving all for the sake of the kingdom. We love you. And we pray these things in the one who has died, and the one who has raised and ascended, the one who is interceding for our behalf at the right hand of God the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Magic Valley Bible Church Sermon Podcast. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.mvbibletf.org or Facebook at facebook.com slash mvbible or YouTube at youtube.com slash mvbible.